Welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast, where we partner with experts in the health, wellness, and nutrition field to deliver you an excellent variety of content based on real science, real facts, and real food. I'm your host, Daron. And I'm Nicole. And today we're talking current events with semaglutide and Tufts Food Guide. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 125 of the Eat Right Nutrition podcast. Today, we are going to talk about a hot new weight loss drug, semaglutide or semaglutide, as some people may be pronouncing it. I don't really know which one it is. I have heard the scientific community, however, call it semaglutide. So we're going to go with that. And we're also going to talk about something that has been circulated that is now recirculating which is Tufts Food Guide. And this is an algorithm that is used to categorize foods basically from zero to 100 in terms of how healthy they are. We're going to talk about what is circulating online in regards to this. And we're going to talk about what our thoughts are on what is circulating and our thoughts on the food guide altogether. Nicole? Garon? I think we're going to start by talking about semaglutide which is currently being sold under three different brand names. And the first one is one that people are very familiar with. It's Ozempic. And I just want to kind of highlight the fact that Ozempic is a one milligram dosage and is not something that is being used or marketed towards weight loss. And I think people are are getting that a little bit confused. Mm -hmm. Ozempic is a drug or semaglutide is, let me kind of get into what semaglutide is. Semaglutide is a GLP-1 agonist that has the ability to reduce blood sugar by enhancing the secretion of insulin. And it is used in a it's used in an injection that is injected once a week at one milligram per week. It is very effective for reducing uh, blood sugar. It's very effective in people with type two diabetes. Mm -hmm. And essentially what happened with this drug is that they found that more recently, I mean, this has been around for a while. They found more recently that it is also very effective for weight loss. And so now it is being used and marketed towards people for that purpose uh, who aren't type 2 diabetic, who don't have type 2 diabetes, right? So uh, quote unquote, mm-hmm. healthy individuals. And we'll talk about our thoughts on that. Uh, so there are three different forms of this drug. There's Ozempic, which is one milligram. There's Rebelsis, which is an oral which is seven milligrams or 14 milligrams, probably will increase uh, gastrointestinal side effects. This is why this version of the drug isn't used very often. I don't really hear about this being prescribed very often because of that. Uh, I think one of the draws to this would be an individual who is not okay with doing injections. And then the 2.4 milligram injection, which is basically the same thing as Ozempic, it's semaglutide. It's called uh, Wegovi, which is 2.4 milligram injections. And that is the dosage that seems to be really effective for weight loss and losing body fat, I'll say. But I don't really know if I want to say losing body fat. We'll just say losing fat altogether. Uh, this has not been approved yet for use by the FDA. It is off-label use, and it is still being looked at and still being studied Nicole, do you want to give some thoughts here? About the 
option of using this. Uh, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts. You got a lot. You have a lot of thoughts. I have a um, lot of thoughts. Well, so I... do we want to do we want to give our thoughts or do we want to maybe go into a little bit of research, weight loss research here when it comes to. Well, yeah. Why don't you lay down the foundation of the research and then I can give all of my thoughts because actually the research will pretty much lay it out for you. But go ahead. All right. So there are what are called step trials and there are four steps in these trials uh, in in terms of uh, research that have been looked at. And I think this was like 2021. So the yeah. step trials looked at a few different parameters here. There are a bunch of studies that went around and 2.4 milligrams of semaglutide showed weight loss of, which is really significant, weight loss of 14.9% of total body weight compared with a placebo in which individuals lost 2.4% after 68 weeks. Weight loss seems to continue to persist slowly and gradually over the course of a year and beyond. Uh, absolute weight loss in clinical trials was 15 kilograms, which is, or a little bit over 15 kilograms, which is like 33, 34 pounds. Um, I have heard individuals all over social media talk about in, in the comment sections where, hey, I've lost 30 pounds over the course of three months using this stuff. Uh, so it does seem to be super, super effective for weight loss uh, when compared to a placebo, like just, just the difference is astronomical in the research. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the changes in body composition because there's a caveat here, which I think is really important to talk about. Mm -hmm. There's a 3.5% reduction in total fat mass, and there's a 2% reduction in uh, total visceral fat. And I think that this is important from a health standpoint, because when we talk about where your fat is, for example, when we look at individuals who are insulin resistant, which, mm -hmm. you know, is kind of somewhat synonymous with being uh, with type two diabetes, right? You don't want to be insulin resistant. And what we look at when we look at data, mechanistic data on insulin resistance, what it seems like is upper body and visceral adiposity seems to contribute the most to someone's likelihood of being uh, insulin resistant. Now, that that seems to be a major cause of insulin resistance, right? So right. if you so if you have upper body obesity or abdominal obesity, or aka a visceral obesity, you are more likely to be insulin resistant. So what this is saying is that there are there's going to be improvement in terms of health markers. Uh, hyperlipidemia is going to be decreased. Uh, insulin resistance is going to be decreased. Uh, risk of cardiovascular disease, blood pressure, all of these markers are going to be decreased. So when you look at it at face value, you say, okay, well, if somebody is obese and this, I'm going to give a little bit of my thoughts here. If somebody is obese, like morbidly obese, then one of the number one things that you could do for their health is get that weight off. Right. So I'm kind of okay. If somebody's morbidly obese, they can't, they can't uh, control their food cravings, right? This is the way that this drug seems to work is that it seems to work. GLP-1 agonists seem to work as an appetite suppressant. Uh, we don't know exactly how or why, but it seems that there are GLP-1 receptors located in areas of the brain. When we look at like rats and mice and things like that, uh, there are GLP-1 receptors located in areas of the brain that control hunger and satiety. So there is some link there. And that seems to be the most prominent thing. So for people who are really obese and they can't control their cravings and their hunger cues for various different reasons, right? Leptin, they may be leptin resistant. 
They may have issues with uh, ghrelin, which is uh, the hormone that's released from your stomach, right? And GLP-1 also released from uh, your intestinal cells. This may be effective in uh, reducing an individual's risk who is obese. However, the caveat that I want to talk about here is 3.5% reduction in total fat mass, 2% reduction in visceral fat mass, and 10% decrease in total lean body mass. Although there's a slight improvement in the ratio of lean mass to fat mass, you're still losing a pretty large amount of lean mass. And what the, you know, I was watching a video from, I, I don't know, it was like one of the directors of the research that was talking at like some, uh, giving some speech and, and she did a video on this talking about the drug that it is still important to do resistance training exercise because otherwise you're going to listen when we, when we look at like calorie deficits, for example, First and foremost, one of the things that we talk about when it comes to a calorie deficit is we say you want to make sure that you're eating adequate protein uh, so that you can mitigate some of the loss in muscle. To me, a 10% loss in muscle is not an acceptable loss in muscle mm -hmm. mass and resistance training, right? So like what, what do you do in order to reduce the amount of muscle mass lost? There are two major things that you'll be doing. Number one, you're going to make sure you're eating adequate protein to stimulate muscle protein synthesis and blunt the catabolic response. And number two, you're going to be doing resistance training, which also stimulates muscle protein synthesis, activation of mTOR, the gene for muscle protein synthesis, and helps to maintain lean mass throughout the process. So uh, some of my thoughts on this are you're still going to need to want need to and want to change some habits. Uh, and the other piece that I'll say here is that uh, the percent weight loss does seem to be greater in females than males. So the drug does seem to be more effective in females than it does males, which in most cases it's the reverse. So um, I don't know if I should say kudos to women for that, but uh, Nicole, I'll let you jump in here with some <laughs> of your, your thoughts on this drug and taking it and who it's for, who should take it, who could take it. And, you know, some, some of your thoughts on where people shouldn't take it, I guess. Well, I think you, when we talk about when you say obese or severely obese people who clearly, in my opinion, have issues with health and wellness in an overall as an overall issue, like you don't get obese by living a healthy life. So clearly their their lifestyle is also unhealthy. But I believe it's a cycle. It's unhealthy because there is something going on in their either their brain or their body that is not functioning correctly. I, I absolutely believe that. So I think for people like that who really need to get ahead of their health, you know, if you are already in dis-ease, meaning you're carrying all this body fat and weight and you need to get a little bit of leeway so that you can get some of the, the body weight off so that you can be healthier so that you then can go to the gym and function well enough to work out and feel good enough to work out, then I think it's a great option. I mean, I think everything is an option. It just depends on how we use it. And I think how we market it and who it's marketed towards. So I think for the people that really need it, this is like everything else. It's really important that they have these options so we can get people healthier. But the big piece that I still cannot get over is that even using the drug, the severely obese people that are using it to get weight off, at some point in that process of healing, they still have to build a healthy relationship with food, get exercise, lift weights, work on their sleep. Like all the habit building that we talk about does not 
go away. It's just a small step closer to them being able to do those things so that they continue to be healthy. Now, for the people in the middle of the road who have like 20 pounds to lose that are not using healthy habits and behavior and prioritizing health, I feel like that's who it's really being marketed to, to be honest with you. I don't think that the people that really need it are it's marketed to them per se. I think it's all over the the person that doesn't want to take the time to work on their habits and change their behavior and work on their lifestyle. It's the same thing. They want to get a little bit ahead so that they can just skip out on all those processes and just get to a faster. It's another quick fix for them. And then for the lean people who are in the gym, why in the world, this is just my opinion, would you want to take a weight loss drug to enhance more weight loss when that could be used for people that really need it. Okay. So I'm going to say a couple of things here in regards to what you just said. So if I'm not mistaken, I do think that it does seem to be slightly more effective in individuals who are closer to their goal weight in getting them to that goal weight uh, versus on individuals who are obese. Um, The other thing that I'll say is- But wait a minute, hold on. Wait, wait, wait. Go ahead. Do you well? You're saying that it can get them closer to their goal faster because they are more metabolically. Fit I don't know. I don't to know. To get there, there's, there's and some, why can't they do that so. with lifestyle? Of course they can. So then, why aren't that? Why isn't that the priority? You know what I'll say though, Nicole, and I, we, you and I, I think have both experienced this as coaches. There are many people out there that are resistant to. I don't know about many, but there are a few people that we come across with that we come across as coaches that are somewhat resistant to fat loss and it's very difficult to take them from I don't think they're resistant they to fat loss. I think they're resistant to a mindset change that will provide them the opportunity to create the change. So if this is an option for them to get over that hump, like it helps their them feel better and get into a more positive mindset, okay, fair. But I still think the the root cause of that still has to be addressed. That's all I'm saying. Right. And the other thing that I want to say is you talked you talked about who it's marketed towards. So I want to talk a yeah. little bit about the marketing. A lot of the marketing that I've seen is like health spas that have a nurse practitioner in place that will prescribe the stuff. And it's like you're talking a lot of money. Like it's like, okay, hey, sign up for this monthly thing where it's like 900 bucks up front and then X amount of dollars per month. If you look at America as a, as a whole and you look at the largely the individuals who are generally obese, yeah, they're it's not-, not it's not individuals that can afford to pay for this stuff without insurance and insurance mm-hmm. is not covering this type of a drug. So, yes, I do agree that it's not really being marketed towards people who are morbidly obese, in which case I would say, yeah, you know what? These people may need this. And maybe if they lose some weight, remember, remember that conversation that we had with um with Patrick who had the lap band put in and he already Mm -hmm. gained some momentum and then he was motivated to keep going. I think that this may be an instance for somebody who is morbidly obese to start losing weight, start feeling really good about themselves and then start making some habit changes. However, because it's off-label use and insurance isn't covering it, I don't think that these are the people, like when you take a realistic look at who is obese in this country, it's typically people below poverty. It's people that can't afford a drug like this off label. Now it is continuously being looked at and there is a potential where if you have uh, over a certain BMI that 
the insurance companies may start covering this for you yeah. as a weight loss, just like an insurance company will cover a weight yeah, loss surgery. surgery. We're just mm-hmm. not there yet because it's, yeah. it's very new. The, the use of this specifically for weight loss is very new. Like if you're type two diabetic, uh, chances are, depending on what insurance you have, your insurance is going to cover this stuff. But for the morbidly obese, we're just not there yet. So mm-hmm. I agree with you in the fact that it's not really being marketed towards the people who would actually need the stuff. And it's more so being marketed towards, you know, a health and beauty spa, right? Which Where- just that just solidifies everything that I'm saying, that it's a beauty and um, what is am I trying to say? Like a beauty and aesthetic, physical aesthetic, opposed yes. to a health and wellness drug that's helping people get healthier and then helping them work on their habits and change and, and creating a lifestyle. It, it always goes back to the way that people look and as opposed to how healthy they are. I don't know. It's just, I yeah, mean, I'm- I, listen, and I'll say this too. So it's an appetite suppressant. So it doesn't teach you really to deal with hunger. Right. That that in in which like in through the normal process of being in a calorie deficit, yeah, uh, we, you get hungry. The the other thing is we don't really know what do, is there an exit strategy, is there a lower dose maintenance dose? Like what happens after you lose the weight? We it's kind of inconclusive right now, and in addition to that, so yes, are you going to be healthier by reducing your BMI according to? all of the research. Yes, because you're going to change all of these kind of metabolic processes that are going on, right? You're going to reduce your uh, blood pressure. You're going to reduce your, uh, your cholesterol, your, uh, your triglycerides. You're going to reduce your blood sugar, your insulin sensitivity is going to change, right? All of these things that are going to make you healthier. However, you're also losing muscle and there are a ton of metabolic advantages to building muscle, right? When we look at women, for example, which we, and we just said that, the drug is super effective for women. If you're losing a lot of muscle, you're not holding on to a lot of bone either, right? So from a yeah. bone density standpoint, it would be wise to lift weights and build muscle. And from an exercise standpoint, right? We've talked about doing cardiovascular activity and increasing uh, the number of uh, mitochondria, right? So if you're increasing the number of mitochondria that you have, you can process because that's the powerhouse of the cell. You can process energy more efficiently, Uh, Therefore, you have a metabolically advantageous environment and muscle for every pound of muscle that you build, you burn an extra six calories a day, which doesn't seem like a lot. But if you put on 20 pounds of muscle, that's a 120. What is that? 120 calories a day. That is a pretty significant amount, right? So if you're looking at the journey from a long term standpoint, you're going to have more metabolic advantages that you won't get from taking the drug. Yeah. Well, I got to say this. All the people that have reached out to me, because I know we've talked about this offline. I've had DMs in my on my Instagram. What do you think? What are your thoughts? I've had previous clients that I you know, have worked with in the past. Everybody that has messaged me are the people that are not actually doing any of the work. And I say that very quietly in case anybody is listening, but it's true. Like they're not working out. They don't make exercise a priority. And 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 I'm not saying that's everybody. So don't everybody hate on me. I'm just saying it does tend to be the people that aren't doing that type of work. Now, there are other caveats to this too. Maybe you are someone who's in the gym and working hard and doing everything quote unquote right. And there is issues going on with your hormones or your body or other things that may be happening, thyroid issues. I I don't know, whatever it may be. And this is an option. So 
I'm never against anything. I just think two things. One, who as the individual is it for? How will it work for you? And is it really getting to the root cause of the the real issues in terms of your health and wellness? Mindset and health are first. Aesthetics come after those things are established and set because that's how it becomes a lifestyle. And I just, I'm so, I'm so like worn out by the quick fix mindset that I don't well, know, I've been doing this like, time. It's like the magic it just gets pill. Old. It's like yeah. the magic pill thought process where people just want I the can't. magic pill. They're like, I why would I why would I want to work for it if I could take a shortcut? But what we know well, from listen. taking wait, hold on. But what we know from taking shortcuts <laughs> is that it well, this is something that I say all the time is when you take a shortcut, it lands you at square one and then that ends up being the longer road. And I think this is what we're going to find with a lot of people in some way, shape, or form. I can't see it yet, but I, I do know that when anytime somebody tries to take a shortcut, they land at square one and it ends up being the longer road anyway, because they need to yeah. hit the reset button and start all over again. So um, mm-hmm. that is my big concern around a lot of this stuff. Uh, it's very buzzy right now. It is very it's, popular it's everywhere there. It's everywhere. And the worst part is Instagram and like social media. It's everything I scroll on. This is the new hot. Everybody's talking about it. Get on it. This is the way to do it. Someone DM'd me. I have my wedding next year. Do you think this is something I should take to get uh, thin enough to fit in my wedding dress? And I don't know. I I just. Well, here's the other piece that I look at, too, is I do think with that amount of muscle loss, right? When you're talking 10% muscle loss, you're also like when people like are trying to achieve these things and these physiques there, I think you end up being kind of like what we call skinny fat. And you end up being disappointed with where you are. And then you're like, oh, well, because you're chasing a number. And I've talked about this with myself, for example, on the other end of the spectrum. I've talked about how uh, when I was bodybuilding, I was chasing a number going up. And then I ended up putting on a lot of body fat and I kind of lost sight of what I wanted to begin with, which was a physique that I wanted. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are going to kind of do the same thing in the other direction is they're going to be like, Hey, I want a weight of let's, let me just make up a random weight. Like I want to be 115, right? Yeah. And I want to be 115 pounds. And then you focus on that number and then you get there and then you look in the mirror and you're still like, well, I don't, that's I didn't not think what this I thought, what, I didn't think this is what it was going to look like. And yeah. then you have to do the work to build the muscle and quote unquote tone, as people say, we know what people mean when they say yeah. tone. Um, mm-hmm. and, and they need to develop some kind of a physique and the drug is not helping you develop the physique that you want. So just be very careful when you're considering this and really kind of have a good grasp or a good grip on what your end goal is. And if your end goal is a physique, like maybe some influencer that you see online, just keep in mind that if there's a, a, a large percentage of muscle lost through the process, you may get to that weight and really be thoroughly disappointed. Yeah. I really wish that stuff like this was really given and driven and marketed towards the people that really need it. The person that's severely overweight, that's embarrassed to come into the gym. My gosh, this for them to get to a place where they feel better about themselves and are healthy enough to come in and feel confident. I want that person for me. That's the person that should have this available to get their health under control and feel good and, you know, look better and all the things that 
you know, that type of person really might need help with. I mean, that's just my two cents. Well, let's be real, Nicole. Anybody that we're coaching is probably not that person that you're exactly. talking about. Exactly. Yes. And for anyone out there that may feel like they're not fit enough to get into a gym or comfortable enough to put on workout clothes to go to a gym, come see me and I'll let's fix that. I'll hook you up, girl. I'll help you. Yeah. No one should ever feel that way. That's awful. All right. So on to the next topic, Nicole, something else that has been, I guess this is the episode of current events and things that are super popular (laughs) online. So this is something that has circulated before and is kind of recirculating now. And I want to pull it up. And I think I, I'm not going to do it justice without doing a reel on this. So later this week, I'm going to try to post a, a reel with the information from just so that you have like some some pictures to look at some as visual. I'm talking some visuals. Yeah. So, so you're talking about an image, this this chart. Right? I'm talking about it. I'm talking about the chart. Yeah. So the uh, Joe Rogan posted this and I'm pretty sure it was his the last post that he uh, posted. Memes are also posted. This is another page that I follow. Uh, Max Lugaver talked about this. Who else talked about it? Uh, you, you know, all of the people that are. Uh, to me, the biggest culprits of the, do you know what's interesting to me is the most, uh, some of the most popular people in the nutrition space are also the biggest culprits of misinformation and recirculating mm-hmm. misinformation. And this is what kind of boggles Shock my mind. Value. So, w- what I'm going to say is this so, there is this image that is circulating, and they're basically what they're saying is according to the government, the Lucky Charms are healthier than ground beef or whole legs or whatever. And I'm looking at this image right now. And I'm, the, the image on the bottom here is whole eggs fried in butter. And then it says that like Lucky Charms are, they score higher. So I want to kind of put into a little bit of context what we're talking about here. So the image that is circulating took food from different categories and put them all into one image from uh, Tufts University came out with this algorithm and it's called, it's Tufts Food Guide. Right. And it's called Food Compass. And the Food Compass took a bunch of information from a bunch of different foods and took a bunch of research and it compiled it together and said, okay, well, we're going to rank foods from zero to 100, zero being the least healthy and 100 being the most healthy. And what they did was they took nine different domains, 54 individual attributes were assessed per 100 calories of a food product with scoring from zero to 10 for beneficial attributes and negative 10 to zero for harmful or quote unquote harmful attributes. And they took, they compiled, they compiled lots and lots of decades of research on this stuff that we have. And some of the things that they looked at here. So we looked at, uh, for example, they looked at nutrient ratios, unsaturated versus saturated fat ratio, which I would not disagree with because the more unsaturated fat, specifically polyunsaturated fats that you have replacing saturated fats, uh, the healthier your diet tends to be. This is why when we look at a Mediterranean diet, it's high in polyunsaturated fats. It's higher in uh, omega-3 fatty acids and even omega-6 fatty acids and uh, the large body of research and the meta-analyses and the systemic reviews, I don't care what any carnivore enthusiast will tell you, uh, the largest body of research will tell you that replacing saturated fats with 
unsaturated fats or polyunsaturated fats of any kind, omega-6 or omega-3, so seed oils included, uh, will yield uh, more beneficial uh, health effects uh, specifically or especially uh, when it comes to cardiovascular risk. Uh, they also looked at fiber to carbohydrate ratio. So how much total carbohydrate does a food have and how much fiber is in it? They also looked at potassium and sodium ratio, right? So when we're looking at people who have hypertension, sodium will tend to increase hypertension or increase blood pressure. And potassium has an opposite effect, which is very beneficial for reducing blood pressure. So how much potassium versus sodium a food has? They also looked at a bunch of different vitamins. They looked at vitamin A, thymine, riboflavin, niacin, vitamin B6, folate, cobalamin, which is uh, B12, vitamin C, vitamin D, vitamin E, vitamin K, choline. They looked at a bunch of different minerals, iron, zinc, copper, etc. Uh, they looked at food-based ingredients. Does it contain fruits? Uh, are there vegetables, non-starchy vegetables, beans and legumes, whole grains, nuts and seeds, seafood, yogurt? They looked at food additives. So does a food have added sugars? Does it have nitrites or nitrates? We know that nitrites are what are in processed foods and processed meats, for example, like cured bacon and bologna and uh, a sliced deli turkey, right? All of those things, right? Because when, when we look at the data on quote unquote meat causes cancer, it's not necessarily that meat in and of itself causes cancer. It's that processed meats seem to be the culprit because they're high in nitrates and nitrites. And sodium nitrate seems to contribute to colon cancer. So they looked at that. They looked at artificial sweeteners, flavors, or colors. They looked at partially hydrogenated oils, so trans fats. They looked at high fructose corn syrup, and they looked at MSG, monosodium glutamate. Um, they also looked at how a food was processed. They looked at fermentation. They looked at frying. They looked at specific lipids. Does it contain ALA, which is a plant form of omega-3 fatty acids? Or does it, does it contain the more bioavailable forms of omega-3s, which are EPA and DHA? Um, are there uh, MCTs or medium-chain triglycerides? It says medium-chain fatty acids here. Does the food have dietary cholesterol? Are there trans fats? Total fiber content, total protein content, and then phytochemicals and antioxidants and things of that sort. So, Nicole. Yeah. I don't think that measuring these things in a food seems like a bad thing. And when we look at the data on this, so I'm just going to cover some of the things, what it looks like in the image. And this is where we need to be careful of just looking at a graph and having no context, because this is what's going on on social media, like the image that was posted in memes are and on Joe Rogan's Instagram. And people are taking it out of context without actually reading the literature or the research or even just doing what I'm doing right now, which is going to the Tufts website. And I'm going to give you the link so you can look at it on your own and you can look at the data, sites.tufts.edu backslash food compass backslash research backslash data. And you can look at the comparisons for yourself. So I think what an individual did was they took the scoring for foods in different categories and they compared them to each other, whereas Tufts is just looking at foods in specific categories. So I'll give you an example here. Marciano, Mar how do you pronounce that? Mar maraschino cherries, Nicole? Yeah. Maraschino? <laughs> is that is that yeah. an Italian thing? It sounds like maraschino. <laughs> All right. You're so good. I don't know. <laughs> maraschino cherries, which we know are doused in syrup. That's what you use as like the cherry on top of your ice cream, right? So mm -hmm. maraschino cherries scored a 26, 
Dried cherries scored a 55 because they're higher in sugar, according to uh, like per weight or per 100 calories, as we're looking at here. And uh, raw cherries scored 100. So I don't see anything wrong with that here. And if we look at the if we look at the protein category or what is considered the seafood, dairy, eggs and meat category, we have hot dog beef, which scored a three, which is very, very low because probably it's processed and, you know, made with crap and uh, contains a large, a high amount of nitrites, which we talked about. Uh, chicken breast sautéed with no skin scored a 61 and salmon broiled with oil. I don't know what kind of oil, how they categorize that is a 95, but salmon is very high in omega-3 fatty acids. It's very healthy. Now, I would argue that this isn't necessarily a perfect system. When we're looking at salmon, I always say, hey, is it wild caught? Is it farm raised? There's a big difference in the omega-3 fatty acid composition. I do think that one is healthier than the other. Nicole? No, go ahead. I'll finish and then I'll jump in. Okay. And then we're looking at mixed dishes. For example, instant soup, noodle with egg, shrimp, or chicken. So I guess that's like a cup of noodle thing. Scored a one. Minstrone soup, reduced sodium, canned, scored a 60. And then lentil soup, high in protein, high in fiber, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Home recipe scored a 90. And then when we look at beverages, apple juice, fifty to 40 to 50% juice is a 12 Apple juice, 100% is 55 and then carrot juice, probably because it's higher in fiber and also higher in uh, beta carotene. So those phytochemicals that we're talking about scored an 84. When we look at grains, first of all, I want to put the disclaimer here that I don't see Lucky Charms anywhere on this list. And the picture that's circulating had fucking Lucky Charms on it. Um, there are some things that I ne- don't necessarily agree with. For example, General Mills Cheerios scored a 95 uh, and that scored over quinoa and quinoa to me is a whole food. And I really think and I correct me if I'm wrong. I don't really know, but I think quinoa is higher in protein than Cheerios. So it's not a perfect system, but I also don't think that it's what people are making it out to be. And what people are making it out to be is basically saying You can't trust the government. This is funded by the food companies and food manufacturers. And I'm like, you guys are misrepresenting what's even going on here. This is a tool that we're trying to use in which we've done a lot of things. There are a lot of systems that we have in place right now to look at foods that Americans eat and try to make recommendations. And it's not perfect because America is still not eating that great. Uh, And Americans really also aren't following the guidelines as it is. So it's just a a measure or a metric in terms of saying, okay, well, how do we categorize foods and guide people to eat the right things? And I don't, I'm not seeing here, Nicole, what Mm -hmm. is being circulated on the internet. And I'll let you jump in here. Well, what you're talking about, what's being circulated was, I think it was last year that a client sent it to me. And I sent it to a bunch of my trainer friends and I sent it to some clients that I wanted to have them look at it. And we were kind of having a chuckle over just the whole thing in general, because I think everybody's food needs are different. And of course, there's a spectrum of healthy versus unhealthy. And there's a spectrum of allowing some variety of foods in your food plan, like all kinds of stuff. But sending this around, the the shock wasn't that Lucky Charms made a higher had a higher number than steak or I don't know, whatever the claim is on it. 
The shock was that we're still talking about foods in these isolated aspects, like Lucky Charms alone is a terrible food and no one should have it. And it's so dangerous and this and that versus steak, which we know has high protein and can be healthy for the right, you know, type of food plan. Instead of looking at what a dietary plan is over the course of a day, a week, a month, a year, a lifetime, like, you know, they, they're picking apart these foods and put them, putting them into this, this, this greater list and saying good and bad. And again, we're right back to good and bad food versus what does your food plan look like? And what is the overall health and wellness of your lifestyle? Okay. So I, I'm going to say two things about what you just said. Number one, I agree with you that this is something that I've said constantly is that if somebody ever asks me, is this food healthy? Mm-hmm. My answer is always, it depends because you have to look at the context of someone's overall lifestyle to determine whether or not that food fits in to where they are. Like, so perfect example, if somebody eats a high amount of saturated fat and let's say they eat steak three or four days a week, I'm probably going to say, Hey, it's probably not going to be optimal for you. I don't really say healthy or not healthy. Hey, it's probably not going to be optimal for you to eat that much saturated fat and you should probably tone it back. Or if somebody's eating a ton of processed food and says, Hey, is, is white rice healthy for me? Okay. Well, you're not really getting adequate fiber. So if you can, I would prefer you ate a whole grain that contains more fiber. You get a better bang for your buck in terms of that. If you don't like that, then we'll have to figure out other strategies and ways for you yeah. to get to get this in. However, I, I think that this is used as kind of just more of a guide to to tell people like, hey, these foods are higher in protein. These foods are higher in uh, in fiber, like just opt to eat more of these and opt to yeah. eat less of these. Right. Yes. More favorable and less favorable. This or and that. I, and I do think that that's OK. But what I'm not OK with, Nicole, is the way that it's being portrayed in that they're just they're throwing it out out of context. Right. You've taken like things are put into the context of different categories like grains or beverages, for example. Well, yeah. So they're handpicking different categories and putting them against each other. Whereas- exactly. Yeah, right. I got and, you. And that's not how the food guide is working. And that's what's circulating on the Internet. And it's it's just it's funny to me or not funny or not surprising to me that, you know, people are just, they circulate the image and then they're like, this is crap. And then everybody just regurgitates this thing. And it's like, well, that's not even what's being said. Have you even looked into it? Well, I think it's because drone, I think looking at it and seeing the shock, like out of context, it creates drama and, and shock and like outrage and everybody just feeds off of that. They don't feed off of the information. They feed off of Instagrams like, woo, woo, look at this. Oh, my God, they're trying to kill us all. Everything is deadly. Don't eat anything. Right. But it's that's the fear factor, I guess. But again, it, it goes back to if <laughs> when you talk about overall health and wellness, not everything is even the list that they have in the actual link that you gave out on protein, all the options for protein, I don't think anyone would argue that a this or that option is great for people to see and, and good for a visual guide or or for, you know, a guide of options to choose from for putting your food plan together or putting meal plans together. Listen, I sent that around. We talked about that in text messages with clients and, and friend, my friends. You know, I kept thinking, look at this. Is This is what's go. My point was, this is what's going around, not the actual guide itself. It's like, this is really interesting that this is what people are focusing on. Yet again, 
I feel like it's more of a distraction away from what we really should be focusing on for health and wellness. Is it Lucky Charms versus steak? Is it Cheerios versus quinoa? Like, Well, here's my thing is you can't compare the two. You can't compare a cereal versus a steak. That's apples to oranges. So with that being said, both can be present in a food plan and be healthy. Here's what I'm going to (laughs) say. Okay. So we we have two. We think two different ways when it comes to this kind of stuff. What I'm going to say here is I don't think that the food compass is as it's definitely not as bad as people are making it out to be. I don't think it's this government funded lobbyist thing that people are trying to say that it is. I also, however, don't think it's a perfect system. And I don't think that we'll ever have a perfect system for looking at foods in 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 context, which the third thing that I'll say is to your point, Nicole, we really have to look at context when it comes to is a food or a food plan or a lifestyle overall, is it healthy? Mm -hmm. We have to look at that. And I don't, I just, you know, I'm, I'm not okay with some of the biggest names in the nutrition space and the online nutrition space, pushing this out and not doing their due diligence. I mean, these people are writing books and then they're turning around and they're saying, oh, well, look at this crap. And they, they clearly haven't done their due diligence and they haven't done the work to do their research and find out what it actually is. At the end of the day, this is recommending mostly whole foods. Yes, I don't agree that Cheerios should be above quinoa. That's like one thing that I'll point out that probably isn't great. However, when you look at Captain Crunch, it got a rating of a 23, which isn't a good rating. Uh, Frosted Flakes, because it's high in sugar, got a rating of 15. Um, So it's definitely not a perfect system, but it is us or it is our country or our government or our uh, health institutions, NIH, right? Trying to be able to compile information to make recommend to later make dietary guidelines for Americans, which they're probably not going to follow anyway. So that's another issue all on its own. Um, which I've which I've discussed in the past. I'll put I'll do this. I'll put the Nicole wants to say something here. Wait, but let me just say hold this. on, hold on. I'll put the link to the website so you can see for yourself the actual graphs. I'll put the link in the show notes here. And Nicole, you were gonna leave off with another note. <laughs> I was just gonna say when you say things like we're creating this to have people follow uh this guide or this compass. This is my whole point. There isn't anything we're not. We talk about all the time that nothing is perfect. Your exercise program, your food plan, your sleep cycle, everything. So I don't know why when people look at these things, they expect it to be perfect. Number one. And number two, I also don't. Why are we following a a food guide? A food guide is meant to guide options. It's not meant to be set in stone or perfect for you to follow. It's meant for you to look through and pick and choose what works for you, implement into your lifestyle. It's a guide. It's not perfect or something that's set in stone for everybody. So again, back to the mindset shift here, people. It's not meant for you to look at and go, this is exactly the way I should eat and I should absolutely follow this to a T. That's ridiculous. We are all individuals and it's about the person. So you have to use it as a guide. It's a tool. It's a strategy. There are options. Yeah. And Nicole, uh, 
I guess I'm going to leave it there. Listen, uh, the link to the actual <laughs> food compass, again, like Nicole is alluding to, it's called a food compass. It's going to tell you general direction of where to go, but yes. it's it's not meant. Although I will say this, generally speaking, when you look at research that uh, from people that overall follow dietary guidelines, they do seem to have healthier outcomes than individuals who don't. So I'm going to put that out there. Uh, but Agreed. the link the link to the food compass in will be in the show notes. So you can click on it. You can look at the real version of it for yourself and how foods are compared. I'll give you the link to the data page where you can see all the different graphs for the different categories. And that is our episode. And we hope that that was helpful. In these were a lot of things that we have gotten bombarded with uh, lately, Ozempic or uh, semaglutide has been something that people have been asking us about. So we said, okay, you know what? We're going to put this on a podcast. And I've gotten a ton of DMs with this post uh, from Joe Rogan or whoever else uh, has posted it. I've gotten a ton of DMs where people shared this with me. So we decided, hey, you know what? Let's cover these two topics. And with that being said, if you enjoyed this episode, click subscribe, give us five stars, write a review, share this with a friend, and you'll hear us next week. 